If I need you, I will commune. Right. <laughs> Nifonudis. <laughs> I'll text my deity. You up? Dangerous Basilica in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 110 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about playing characters with a higher calling. But first the rogue traders come up with a plan in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Eisenhorn struggles to hold on to his soul in the Character Creation Forge. So, we didn't get too deeply into this, but the... Warhammer 40k Wrath and Glory panel that Russ Watson gave at Gen Con is now finally online. The one that we weren't able to attend? Yeah. Because we were double booked? Were we very busy with very important things? To be fair, nobody cared about that panel until they announced 40k. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we didn't have the tickets for it. Right. (laughs) We were triaging. There's a lot to do there. Right. Uh, But we talked about uh, this a bit in our Gen Con recap, but just wanted to... To lay out some of the extra info you get by watching the entire thing. So, Fantasy Flight Games doesn't have the 40k license anymore. Instead, it is uh, Shane. Will you with the German, please? Ulysses. Spiel. Spiele. Spiele. <laughs> it's a German company. Uh, they do uh, the Dark Eye, which is the most popular RPG in Germany. Uh, I've heard good things about it. So they are now they now have the license, and they are going to be creating a new game called Wrath and Glory that's going to come out uh, around Gen Con 2018. They say they're already doing some initial playtesting. There might be a public, like a beta test, some point next year. Okay. I think we should try to get it on that list. Yeah, for sure. We probably won't be able to talk about it, though. So what's the point? But we could have it in our heads. That's true. Um, So I think two important things is that it's bringing the 40K role-playing into the current tabletop setting. Mm -hmm. So it'll be the, what, Dark Imperium? Is that what it is? Yeah. The Primarchs are back. The The, the, Galaxy is split Imperium Nihilus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Basically what happened, I think, in the storyline is that they retconned it this year so that Cadia fell. So basically, the 13th Black Crusade led by Abaddon. Hey, 13th time's a charm. Yeah, so it it fell. The Eye of Terror split the galaxy in half. And Mm -hmm. one half is like relatively okay, and the other half is completely screwed. Yeah, they don't have the Astronomicon there. Um, So I actually have no idea how they're piloting through the warp at all. No, this is too into canon. Who cares? Fine, fine, fine. Nobody likes new canon anyway. (laughs) I agree, but that's what you're playing in this new game. Right, so... The main takeaway is that you can play any of the 40k races. The the main like the, races the major ones, right. that actually have mines. Yeah. No Tyranids, but Eldar, Dark Eldar, Orcs. And various levels of Imperials, right? So mm-hmm. from IG to Space Marines. Yeah, Scissors of Battle, Inquisitors. So basically they're taking all of the different lines that they had previously. Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Only War, and rolling them into a single game that uses the same system. So there's going to be one main book that's going to have all these different races and statted space marines. And You can play as a space marine. You can play as an inquisitor. Uh, I'm not sure about rogue traders specifically, but... You know, uh, whatever. That's, yeah. that's just an inquisitor with better gear. <laughs> Done. Uh, 
and you'll be able to use the same system to do that. Now, I think the idea here is that you can potentially mix and match and have them in the same party, maybe. But they're trying to make this universal system. And because of that, it's going to be like a D6 dice pool system. Yeah, I guess we'll just see what the adventures you're supposed to play are about, right? Because that's how the other line was unified, was around what do you do as a party. Right. So, I, I don't know. Whatever. We'll see it when it comes out. So, it sounds they've got the right guy for the job with Ross Watson. Yeah, so the first book is going to focus on Dark Imperium, and then there are even there's even going to be like a long Eldar storyline. So... He specifically said they envisioned, you know, an entire campaign where everyone's playing an Eldar. So that's very different from previous games that we've seen. Yay. (laughs) Okay, so that's probably the last time we'll talk about Gen Con for a week. But there's another convention coming up that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's a super big deal because it's the first time it's ever happened. So PAX Unplugged is happening the week before Thanksgiving in Philadelphia which is the first PAX board game, role-playing game, tabletop game-focused convention that they've run. Right. And even more importantly than that, we will both be there. Indeed. Uh, As will uh, a lot of people, actually. Um, It seems like there's a lot of people who are making the commitment to be there for year one. So uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty of friends there. Yeah, we're trying to do some sort of joint event thing with going last so what could be posted on that and then we've also submitted a couple of panel ideas uh one of them with going last and a couple others on our own so if we get approved for that apparently panels are a little more curated at pax than they are at gen con it it takes more than just asking for a room to get a panel scheduled so we'll see if we make the grade yeah i think that means our chances are lower because really i wouldn't let us have a panel yeah we have a we have a backup plan like we'll we'll just (laughs) host some tables and you know have people come play games with us well also our entire gaming group is coming as well oh yes you can meet the actual players who played in the morning glory campaign and in the dynasty unwarranted campaign so you know if we do have a panel we'll at least have a few people in the audience and if we're relegated to you know our own tables those will also have people playing as well they will be full (laughs) they will be small but full and lastly, we've got an update for you Patreon supporters. Yes, yeah, so we owe you the Morning Glory uh, Supercut, um, where we edit all of the Morning Glory segments into one long MP3 that you can listen to kind of start to finish and get the whole story. Um, I did not anticipate it to take this long. It is taking way longer than I thought. I, I sort of anticipated a little bit, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to be like this naysayer. And also, who thought we would ever get to $100? Well, that's what it was. I thought we had a couple months before we would hit the target. And then by that point, I would be far enough ahead that we could just close it out and release it relatively soon. And it's definitely not working out, that timing. Um, so part of the problem is that like it's taking longer because a lot of our early episodes are kind of a mess before we found our format yeah they're mostly hot garbage yeah Yeah. so if i like if i had started at episode 50 and done the recap it would be done (laughs) but unfortunately i have to go all the way back to episode one all right well that's a terrible excuse and so we are going to apologize with stuff yes exactly so 
we are going to do our first giveaway for our Patreon supporters. Uh, two lucky patrons will be chosen at random in uh, early October. And we are giving away uh, two prize packs. The first one is a Pathfinder Pocket Edition starter set. So that is the core um, the core rules for Pathfinder and the core bestiary, uh, both in the Pocket Edition. So they're smaller and paperback. But the entire rule set. Yeah, everything Just, you need to play Pathfinder. Right. And we're also giving away a copy of the Adventure Path, Curse of the Crimson Throne. Which I think is the latest Adventure Path. I believe it is. And but it looks super cool. Yeah, I thumbed through it, and it, it it's a Pathfinder Adventure Path, which means it's really well done. It, it seems really cool. Uh, even if you aren't playing Pathfinder, I think you can take those ideas and, and adapt them pretty easily. Yeah, we sort of struggled with whether to give it away or just keep it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But we're giving it away. Right. It will not become a Dark Heresy uh, Rogue Trader plot for you guys. Good. Because if it was, I would just read it. Right. So what we're going to do is we're going to choose two winners from the pool of whomever is a patron as of October 1st. So if you have already uh, been one of our uh, supporters, you're going to be entered. And if you uh, sign up in the next, uh, I guess, three weeks, before, 30-ish days, yeah, right, uh, you'll also be entered. Yeah, and we're gonna draw two winners. The first winner, I guess, the grand prize winner, gets to choose which whichever one they want: the adventure path or the starter set. And the other person will get the other. Right. And we will, of course, announce that on the show um, the thurs the first Thursday of October, unless the first Thursday is the first of October, in which case it'll be the week after. All right. So speaking of terrible timing. Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using the Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And the Rogue Trader crew of the His Enduring Light find themselves on the feudal world of Gauntlegrim, where they are humping it with the Imperial Guard, trying to prove they aren't heretics. Does humping it mean a different thing where you're from? Uh, yeah, it does in this context. Okay. Because <laughs> I only know one thing that is humping it. Uh, good for you. <laughs> That's heresy. <laughs> Blam. But okay, yeah, I guess we're doing that. So uh, your character, uh, the arch militant Trank, recently reconnoitered the Orcish lines and discovered that they have a nearly fully operational war truck mm-hmm. under construction. And brave, brave, wise, oh-so-wise arch-militant Trank decided, mm, let's retreat. Yeah. You could have taken a one-in-a-million shot and tried to disable it from uh, from safe distance, but decided to head on home and uh, develop a more robust plan yeah old trank definitely would have taken the shot Uh uh-huh but old trank saw people got sewn into a human tableau by dark eldar yes (laughs) (laughs) new trank has decided "Mm, let's play things safe right (laughs) so trank is a high level scout he's essentially the ranger of the group and he is able to guide the uh the advanced party uh that he's located back uh, behind friendly lines and deliver the terrible news that a war truck is probably on its way in the next mm, 20 minutes or so it's not that that tight of a timeline you've got 40 minutes <laughs> you have some time to plan and fortunately the commander of the uh imperial forces colonel Sturm, is pretty experienced in fighting orcs 
So he knows sort of what this is going to look like. It's going to be a massive wave um, breaking right across the the center of your lines, just crushing your spirit. Uh, and that war truck is going to come in flying at full speed, um, just wreaking havoc and causing terror amongst the men. Right. It's like you took four tanks and sort of mushed them together and somehow it still works. Exactly. Okay. So we decide, obviously, the best way to handle the war truck is not head on it is to grab our largest gun which is on our ship yeah on on the hustle negotiator (laughs) your gun cutter uh so we decide to fly in or at least some of us uh the people who can fly draco and trank decide to fly in it wait for the war truck to show up and then we'll just shoot it with the auto gun right uh and then the remainder of the group will wait in the front lines help repel the initial charge and then slip through the trenches and into no man's land with <laughs> a, a large pile of crack missiles in order to take down the war truck see that sounds like the kind of dumb plan that old trank would have been a part of well you are part of this plan you're just the safe one in That's the strafing right. exactly <laughs> <laughs> i will be up there far away uh, unfortunately, it didn't turn out to be quite as safe as I had hoped. Uh, no, because the war truck fired back, as it turns out. Who knew that they had missiles? They have rockets. They are spelled with two Ks, R-O-K-K-I-T, rockets. And occasionally they hit things. Yeah, and when they do, it hurts. And so we almost fell out of the sky. Yeah, uh, only because Draco, your primary pilot, was hell-bent on taking that thing down. Uh, and and as it was, you know, as the wave was cresting over the uh, front line, and your companions managed to slip through safely uh, into more forward trenches, take up positions against the war truck. Uh, your final strafing run, as your engines are smoking, one of your wings is half is half missing. Your landing gear is probably back there, about a kilometer, and. You take another rocket right in the nose, but you deliver one right into its face. And uh, what happened, Ishan? As the gun cutter circles away, knowing it can't take even one more hit, the war truck explodes, and we win! Right? Well, it sends... Right, it's over? It sends orcs everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It explodes into orcs, and then all that is left of the smoking ruin is... The giant war boss who emerges from it. Yeah, there is just a loud howl of anger as uh, as probably the biggest orc you've ever seen sort of rises from the smoking ruins with uh, an honor guard of sorts and advances on your comrades. And we'll find out how bad that gets next week. So this week, we are talking about characters of faith. So almost every fantasy RPG and, you know, RPGs across the board have a huge section somewhere in the book, usually in the back, on religious pantheons. You know, there's the racial pantheon. Elves have these seven gods. There's mm-hmm. Coralon and Sahanin. And dwarves also have these different gods, which are totally different from the elven gods, even though they kind of do the same things. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's nine sets of gods for humans. Right. Depending on, you know, what part of the world they live in. Which, if you think about it, doesn't that mean that the human gods are just weaker in general? Because Moradin is like, I control all dwarves everywhere. Yeah, but there's more humans. 
Oh yeah, that's true. And they're taller. It's just a volume thing. Yeah, it's just like a mass. Right. Right. <laughs> so, God. Well, of no, the... it can't be mass because you know. God of the ants. God of vermin. Probably the strongest altogether. <laughs> sure. <laughs> vermin. Vermin can't worship. Do you know that? What about uh, formians? Oh, this is my game. Okay, they <sighs> can't. Wow, that's very speciesist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like Rodians, which are basically bugs. Right. And no one wants their worship because they're garbage. Exactly. There's also the domain gods, too. There's just a, you know, a god who's just in charge of murder. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a pretty small pantheon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have like the Dark Six and Eberron. You have the the evil gods and, and evil pantheons as well. But I think the the main defining bit of most fantasy religions is the idea that gods are active in their worshippers' lives um, in in very direct and observable ways versus more faith-based ways. Yeah, they'll hang out with you. Yeah. You know, and, and literally speak to you. And like lock each other in actual prisons that you can visit or break out of those prisons as it were. Or ask you to help. Right. <laughs> So, like uh, like the spell lists in most fantasy games, I think it's usually assumed that like this list of gods and all the religious uh, information is only going to be used by some of the players. And that's either because you have decided that your character belongs to a particular religion, or you have to be part of a particular religion because you want to play a certain class. Right. So, I think even though there's all this info for... Most PCs, it's a relatively small part of your build, and it's a, also a relatively small part on your sheet. Like, it's it's usually just one blank, right? Deity. Right. And that's it. Or maybe domain, if it has to be tied to your deity. Right. But in-game, for a character who does belong to a religion, it is such a huge part of their outlook or their life, just in general, or the motivation for why they're adventuring in the first place. Right. So this episode, we're going to talk a bit about what it's like to play a character who does belong to a religion and, you know, how you can incorporate more of that into your games, both as a player and as someone who's running for those types of characters. So first off, Shane, why would someone want to shackle themselves to a deity? Uh, Maybe because you're required to. Yeah. You get a lot of this with like clerics. Clerics. Yeah. Paladin. I need to share the exact moral outlook of my deity, and right. if I stray in any way... I'm, I'm a fighter now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a garbage fighter. Yeah. <laughs> this happened a lot more in older editions. I think I think in certain versions of the third edition, and, and certainly in lots of other fantasy-type games, uh, you could pick a philosophy. And I know in, in Planescape, you could, you could pick a philosophy that uh, you were a champion of rather than a specific deity. Great. That's just a cop-out. What? Yeah. That was the best. It was, oh, it's goodness. General yeah. goodness. Oh, yeah. No, I know it's the best because it doesn't require you to do anything. <laughs> what do you mean I fall? I'm still good-ish. <laughs> and that's what I believe in wholeheartedly. So I think that is an important part of it, though, is the idea that they're restricting what you can and can't do mm-hmm. through that faith, whether that is through a philosophy or a deity proper. Um, I, I, I know some gods restrict... Um, like which weapons you're allowed to use. God, the favored weapon. Um, in 5th in edition, you don't have restrictions, but they do add spells to your list that are either always prepared or that otherwise wouldn't be cleric spells. Mm-hmm. 
and then you know a bunch of gods have often weird tenets right that you need to adhere to that sometimes don't even make sense in the type of game that you're playing mm-hmm. or the setting that you might be in yeah and i mean fifth edition is sort of gotten a little looser with that with the paladin um you still have those tenants but they're not necessarily tied to an individual deity but i mean it's not a whole large leap from how paladins originally were right but so if you find yourself playing in a game where you basically need to decide that your alignment needs to be within one step of your deity's alignment right well you may as well buy into that because you have to you have to do it anyway in order to play this particular game. So, you know, dive headlong into being a religious character who, like, actually believes in this. Even if you aren't required to be religious, though, it can add a lot of characterization to to a PC. I think it's fun to, you know, really commit to the racial gods. If you're an, if you're an orc, it is... You can be an orc barbarian, fine. But it is a lot of fun to be like, no, no, no. I am super into Grumsh. Yeah, um... So, so Grumsh specifically is a great one because he, of course, only has one eye. Yeah. Which means that if you ever need to demonstrate your faith, <laughs> you got two of them. <laughs> I don't know how faithful you are to Grumsh. Yeah, I think there are some versions of D&D that sort of require if you're going to be a cleric of Grumsh, you put your eye out. Right. Um, I Some of the elven uh, racial gods are... Um, the dwarven racial gods have kind of similar tenets, right? Um, there's a reason that dwarves use hammers, typically. Um, the, the idea of the dwarven forge kind of um, carrying that through. And then same thing with, uh, you know, elves being kind of foppish. and uh, You mean like Corlon? Yeah, like Corlon, <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, I use a longsword, but I write poetry. <laughs> I write poetry with my longsword. Right. <laughs> My longsword is poetry in motion. <laughs> it's an elven thin blade. Right. <laughs> I mean, if I haven't played a dwarf in a while and I'm rolling up a new dwarf character, I'm always much more drawn to being a very strict adherent of Moradin. Right. And, and I think for me, and tell me if you if you feel the same way. I don't. <laughs> Great. The The reason for that is that it offloads some of the decision making. Right. Like you are now you you get you get like a list of ideals that you can kind of bounce situations against and see, okay, well, how does that match my character's ideals? Right. Because my default is follow what Moradin teaches. Yeah. I think especially with the racial gods, if you are sort of playing a prototypical member of that race anyway, like why not throw the god in because everyone gets where you're going and it gives you really easy like uh, guideposts Mm -hmm. in how to play the character. Yep. You know, if if it was like my fifth dwarf in a row, I'd probably be like, actually, I'm going to play against type. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely mix it up. But I also like the religious aspect as a source of steadfastness in the party, right? There's um, there's tenants that are sort of out there and, and public, right, that, that other players can see that you can draw a line in the sand as a character and say, like, I will not be a murder hobo. I am a faithful worshiper of Moradin. Moradin would frown upon me for doing this, and you know I would shame my family, right, or my clan. I guess if I'm a dwarf, um, I just won't go along with this, right? You have that to lean against for that intra-party conflict. Yeah, I think in game it's sort of a nice way to avoid some of the like 
postmodern relativistic arguing you can get into in a party where it's like well we should do the thing that is the most expedient right now because like we're saving the world you know but if you're the druid who like worships nature or like uh, an agriculture goddess you are you're not going to burn the forest down right you're not doing that period and it doesn't matter how much greater good there is like that is that's not okay for you right and the other players know that and so that's something that's a tension that you kind of work around or it, or it can really sort of help narrow down the uh, possibilities in like a sandboxy type game, right? Yep. Well, we're obviously not going to go in that direction. The druid's not cool with it. Right, right. Or, I mean, you get the inverse, right? Which is, um, which is how important must this task be mm. if a druid of, you know, the goddess of agriculture is willing to salt the fields, right? Like... What, how evil must that enemy be if you're willing to salt the land uh, as you evacuate? Right. You can never, ever exist again. I actually can't believe what I'm willing to go through in order to make sure that this is actually over forever. Yeah. Uh, as somebody who really likes the knowledge cleric, I really like the moral dilemma that you would face if you uh, had to like burn down a library. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was just right. thinking, li- the Library of Alexandria, that was destroyed by a cleric of a knowledge god Mm -hmm. what had to have been the circumstances right like (laughs) what evil knowledge must have been contained in there if they're willing to burn all of the good books as Mm -hmm. well so even if you aren't playing a character who sort of fits perfectly into a particular religious role or you know with a particular deity it's a it can be a really great hook to have a character who just is a devotee of a religion, mm-hmm. not for any particular reason. Right. You know, the fighter who went to war and, you know, didn't really care but found faith in the foxhole. Yep, I love that idea. Um, I also like the uh, traveling minstrel uh, or bard or um, entertainer who's kind of a missionary, right, spreading their faith to new and foreign lands. Yeah, I feel like that's not a thing you often get with bards it's usually okay i need to earn some money or i'm gonna meet some people and learn some rumors not hey have you uh have you heard about set right (laughs) set's pretty awesome let me let me show you this dance (laughs) i also and i mean this is me right I also sometimes think of religion as a way to optimize my RP experience. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, if I know that we're about to play a campaign that's focused on the strife in a particular pantheon, why not be a religious character who's devoted to that pantheon or one god in that pantheon? It gives me an in. Yeah. Yeah, no. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like um, like the arch nemesis flaw from like a lot of systems right (laughs) it's like cool so like i just get to sign up for more spotlight great i'm in (laughs) yeah it doesn't come with any penalties yeah great (laughs) yeah i'm i'm all over this and and that pretty much means that at some point you're going to either meet or kill your own deity right yes and even if you're not going to meet your deity uh, i think there are a lot of campaign settings where inevitably as you get more and more powerful you're gonna hang out with some deity right right? like forgotten realms you know you get strong enough you're gonna run into someone yeah it's it's gonna be tiamat 
<laughs> Eventually, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, she's not the only one. Off has leave to Tiamat. Well, obviously, that's why if you play Forgotten Realms, you start out as a devotee of Tiamat. Right. Duh. But then you have to pick which aspect. It's, uh, it's all very complicated. Well, that depends on which dragon you run into first. First, right. <laughs> it's always green or black. Right. Because those are the weak ones. <laughs> I love poison dragons. <laughs> I love it. It's the best. Acid's cool too, though. <laughs> Wait, we're done with that? Oh, I need a retcon. Um, but yeah, if I'm in Forgotten Realms, well, actually, if you're in Forgotten Realms, you kind of have to pick a DD no matter what, because if, when you die and you don't have one, you go to the Wall of the Faithless and you're just, it's awful forever. Yeah, do like most people and pick it at the last minute. Yeah, that sounds good too, as you, you're dying. Just don't die suddenly. Or, you know, just pick Mistra. Right. Because she likes to get friendly. Or it's nice if other PCs in the party are a different religion from you and you just want either something to talk about or compare. Or compete. Yes. I I am trying. Oh, you're a missionary. I think maybe I'll be a missionary too. Right. Yeah. And, and keep in mind that whether you have faith or don't, um, or or whether you worship a deity, does not necessarily mean you are part of a organization that worships a deity. Right. So churches and temples and those types of things can exist either as part of your religious life or separate from it. Um, so you could worship the same deity, but in a different way, and that cause uh, conflict or debate or whatever between characters as well. Huh. Different sects within a religion. A schism? Yeah. I No, that doesn't. <laughs> definitely doesn't happen in every religion. <laughs> but it should happen in every campaign. Right. So when you're playing a character who belongs to a religion or who worships a deity, I find it very useful when, you know, trying to figure out how to play that in game to sort of compare it to religion in real life and and look at the similarities and differences. Because even if you are not or have not been religious, like real life is steeped in it. It's all around us. And so we can look at people who are religious and talk about, you know, how, how their experience of religion can sort of be translated into the game. Right. But if you think about the the real differences, like what does it mean as a character walking around to have real actual proof of divine power? You know, if you're a cleric, you are channeling the energy of a deity and then it's coming out of your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you feel that happen, right? That's a tactile experience for you. And, and I think what separates this from real world religions is not that you have a an unshakable belief that that occurs, right? Because I I think there's definitely religious people in our world who feel that way. Mm -hmm. It's that there's no reasonable denial of it. Like you don't require faith from a third party in order to uh, witness that having occurred, right? Like whether you choose to follow a deity is the choice, not whether that deity exists. Right. Or whether the power channeled from them works like the, the peasant is healed not because they believe in your deity but because you do and because your deity like actually exists right you know you could be healing someone who is not religious you could be healing someone who is an adherent of a completely different religion and hates your god right and it's still cure cure light wounds still works exactly it's it's almost like faith has like a scientific mechanism Mm -hmm. to it which is why we have knowledge clerics right um, it's it's also th- interesting to think about what gods mean when you have a pantheon of them 
and there's a hierarchy within a pantheon and then also like potentially a super hierarchy of pantheons mm-hmm. uh, where, where gods literally compete with each other right? right this probably makes more sense if you're you know an adherent of like a polytheistic religion right you know like if you're hindu i guess it, it makes more sense right that you have different gods of varying powers and capabilities and abilities who interact with each other right. in different ways but but i think what's interesting there is it's like Hindu holy texts don't have stories of the Hindu gods fighting the Norse gods, right? We don't know who wins between Odin and Shiva. It's mostly rock, paper, scissors, I think. Uh, sure, maybe. <laughs> I mean, we're all humans, right? <laughs> That's so we Ragnarok. end up in the same place. <laughs> but you have that answer a lot of times mm-hmm. in fantasy settings, right? Like there, that, that hierarchy has been has been fought out. That story has been told. Or... It can be told. Or, or it will be told. Right. Because, like, the Mulhorandi are, are, like, just biding their time. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, you know, in Eberron, uh, I like how Keith Baker has said that on the elven island of Arenal, the Undying Court is basically a, a pantheon of essentially ancestor worship. But they have the power of a fiendish overlord. And and the only reasons the dragons haven't attacked is because the Undying Court is protecting this relatively tiny island. So I'm sure in many, many Eberron campaigns, at some point, the Undying Court comes into direct conflict with an overlord or mm-hmm. Tiamat herself. Right. And then it's up to the dice. Yeah. I think there's also probably more of a discussion or thought process that goes into choosing who to worship and why when when you literally have a you know <laughs> a, a platter of choices available to you um all of whom are equally existent and uh, perhaps competing with each other for your uh faith and belief right you got a little bit of power as a worshiper it's not the only game in town yeah if you think about it why wouldn't you start worshiping just some deity really any deity if mm-hmm. you know that like if you actually believe stuff you can cast magic spells right um yeah i think the racial gods have a, a nice sort of correlation with you know people who were born catholic and their family has been catholic forever you know like we're a dwarf we worship Moradin. but when you have those characters who convert later in life or you know have a conversion experience or have really sort of you know done a lot of traveling and then had something happen some event where they're like oh okay i'm going to join this religion or this god i just met you 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 i like uh didn't like Coralon so much that guy kind of aloof no chill right raven queen you seem pretty cool little chill yeah <laughs> a lot of chill i did have a character who converted to worship of the raven queen only after he met her I mean, there's that. Yeah. He was like, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, you're cool. I'm thinking of what you're putting down. (laughs) There's the flip side, right? What happens if you've chosen your deity and then you do finally meet them and they suck? Uh, (laughs) Wait a minute. You want want me to what? Yeah. That's a dumb quest. That's a hard pass. (laughs) Yeah, you, wait, so you are telling me that the way that I have interpreted this particular religious text is not right? But now this is boring and I hate it. I hate this retcon. So let's talk about the broader considerations um, from a game planning perspective. 
Yeah, I think what happens a lot in a campaign is, you know, you are off with your party doing something heroic, something big, maybe saving the country or even saving the world or the, or the multiverse. But if you're doing that, what is your God doing? And why aren't they doing it? Right. And in some settings, that's going to be because they aren't able to directly intervene. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and in others, it could be that they have bigger fish to fry or they're dispassionate and uncaring. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Um, those, uh, the standalone Avengers movies, which is like, okay, Captain America saving the world from Hydra. Where was Thor? Right. Like, what right. was he doing? But you got to come up with a reason. Yep. Well, he, he left. Yeah, he was doing like he was swimming in black ink or something. Doing, you know, something yeah, important, right? Which is just Coralon things, right? You know? <laughs> I'm, I, it's the Coralon sleep, exactly. <laughs> uh, or what if the story is revolving around a different pantheon or a different god that has nothing to do with you? Like you've you've picked your deity, and then later you find out that uh, actually we're spending a lot of time with the Norse gods. Like my Egyptian gods are really not going to play a role here what does my role in the story become? Yeah. And I think that's uh that's the type of thing where you talk to your GM, right? And if, and if that's cool, if you don't need it to be a part of the story for your character to still be satisfying, great. It doesn't have to be, or if they do, you know, work with your GM to figure out a way to introduce them. Uh, maybe you can, you know, lead your deity into the fray mm-hmm. by, you know, tugging, at him (laughs) or maybe it's avatar time right (laughs) uh you know you guys are way down over there in the desert we're up here in the north by the spine of the world where it's very cold have you considered just investing me with divine power save you a lot of time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gms having a character in your game who is religious is such a a great and easy way to be able to railroad them with as much buy-in as you want yeah like you, you play the gods. That's what you do. That's your job, right? So just tell them to do something. Like that commune spell works both ways, right? They cast it. That's yeah. the whole point, right? They're like, please tell me what to do, right? I love that. And you know, usually on the back end, you're working with the player to figure out what it is they're interested in doing, right? But I, I wouldn't let a player tell you what, like exactly what they want to hear from their deity. You know, they no, not not what they want to hear, but the level of involvement of the deity. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the kind of story that they want to you to help facilitate. Right. right. But throw in some twists. Definitely. Like maybe their God isn't their God. I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe that's a thing. I don't know. Great. <laughs> um, that twist can potentially lead to a crisis of faith. Or, you know, I mean, any number of things can lead to crises of faith. When a character puts himself in an unwinnable situation, for example, you know, sometimes it's uh, their worship of a of a deity that fails them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to do what's practical, not what is approved. Um, and so I, I, I think that's a strong, like, rich vein to mine for dramatic character moments, right? Is, is they're very easy to relate to that struggle for a lot of players at the table. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a lot of fun when that sort of grows organically out of whatever story you're telling at the table. And it may be something as simple as that's the way the dice went. Right. You know, like the, the 
character utters a an intense prayer before the battle, but they lose the battle. Right. Prayer worked. Just didn't have it in you. Another outcome of having a crisis of faith could just be a straight-up conversion, mm-hmm. which I think is a lot of fun to play when, especially when you have two characters in the same party who, and one is converting to the other's religion because that that allows you to have a lot of uh, interpersonal interaction as opposed to you have a character who worships one deity and you've sort of fleshed out that background as a GM and then they switch to a different deity mm. and now you've got to flesh out more background. Right. I also like the idea of a of a character switching between gods within the same domain. <laughs> right? Like, like what would make somebody... A, like the pursuit of knowledge, right, as mm-hmm. an ideal, uh, leads you to suspect that perhaps this deity could unlock more knowledge for me than my old deity, or at least different knowledge, right? Or yeah. more war. I don't know. Right? Yeah. There's nothing like that new war smell, right? <laughs> <laughs> nothing like the iron smell of blood in a battlefield. Yeah, Heronius likes to stop fighting wars once we've won. <laughs> yeah. But Hextor. Right. <laughs> Cord only fights till the bell rings, and that's just not long enough for me. Wow, that oh, is... Oh, but ball. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ishan, have you ever played a religious character? I have, although I don't think I've ever played one in a game that we've played together. Uh, probably my most religious character was actually in my very first Eberron game. That was Quinn, who was both a cleric of the Traveler and a warlock. And this was third edition, so you know there were crazy prestige classes where you could advance both at the same time. Um, but I think Warlock and, and you know of the Traveler worked really well together. He was um, a devotee. He was certainly religious, uh, but at the same time he was you know willing to do whatever it sort of took and to get things done. Which I think the Traveler would be fine with that. Mm-hmm. I I assumed. I just went with right. <laughs> What about you? Have you ever, I mean, like ever played a character who was religious? I think our Patreon supporters know uh, from the annotated history of Brand Talandra that I most certainly have um, an excruciating detail of that faith, actually. Um, yes, so I played uh, Brand, the uh, Church of the Silver Flame Inquisitor in the Morning Glory campaign. So. Uh, who had a crisis of faith and ultimately killed his own deity. Yeah, you did do that. But kind of at her request. Yeah, you killed it to make it better. I killed it in order to kill the evil that lurked, that it was committed to binding, basically. You seem a little unsure of yourself there. I'm not quite sure <laughs> of the mechanics of everything. I was just following orders. <laughs> Like, like all good faithful servants. <laughs> yeah, we haven't gotten to the epilogue yet. Right. What were the ramifications? Reform the church. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, like reform, like put it like, back put together. Put it back together, brick by brick, yeah. <laughs> I also did play a um, a droid in a Star Wars game who was really, really, really into the force. Was he a ringist? Hey, what is that? I don't, I don't know that. Is that, uh, is that Legends? Probably, yeah. <laughs> That's not even a thing now. No, whatever. Neither is your character. Also true. Yeah. Because he did end up becoming a force-wielding droid, so. 
That's definitely not canon. <laughs> no mitochondrions in there. <laughs> uh, you know, we injected them, I guess. <laughs> he ate a Jedi. Didn't eat a Jedi. But he was uh, very fascinated with the the tenets of like force using. And of course, there's you know multiple different religious traditions around it, even though everyone sort of uses the same thing. Right. Yeah, I played another character, a paladin in a 5e game that um, it we didn't play the game long enough to really get its full arc. Wait, was that the half-orc? Um, no, though I guess Thrusk did sort of find faith. But in, in himself as a one-man army. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I played a, a paladin who um, I like the idea of worshiping a good god through an evil church um so he was a paladin who upheld the tenants but um part of the part of his character was that he had a cursed sword right so um it was the one that made you super angry if anybody like hurt you um so he would fly off the handle uh smiting things so i'm guessing this wasn't third edition because that's that's the thing that that's how you fall. You want to fall? That's how you fall. No, no, no. This is 5th edition. Okay. Vengeance okay. Paladin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that actually ended up happening, right? Through, like, a practical joke between characters not knowing. Like, all of a sudden, like, oh, wow. Okay. So, I have to attack you now. Like, my, my sword is cursed. <laughs> so, uh, it was an interesting thing, but it was too short of a campaign to, like, let that arc play out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that would have been an interesting kind of being like bound to a cursed object, trying to do right, worshiping your deity, but having basically joined a cult that, mm. um, you know, that you would then want to cleanse in the name of your God. Mm-hmm. What God was that? I couldn't tell you. It was like a homebrew setting kind okay. of thing. Yeah. I, it's one of the things I actually really like about uh, Warhammer 40k is that you're worshiping the God Emperor of Mankind. Right. Right. This this great and good god but just off to the side are the evil gods who are not diametrically opposed they're not complete opposites of the good god they are in many ways aspects of the good god yeah they're the good god to 11 basically right so if you pursue your own good god too much you pretty much end up worshiping one of those other gods one of the chaos gods right yeah and i mean i think um, that's one of the reasons I like GMing 40k so much is the various interpretations that players have for their characters of the Imperial Creed mm. and in the Imperial Faith. Um, but having that sort of hard mechanical backstop of if you do certain things, you gain corruption because that is obviously the path of chaos. Right. It's like a hard enforcement of, nope, that's definitely not lawful good. Right. Um, and, and one of the nice things about the 40k role-playing game is that that built over time, but it wasn't super sudden, right? Mm-hmm. So there were there were checkpoints where eventually you were going to fail and, and have serious complications. But at any given moment, it wasn't like you just lost all your abilities. It was, you know, a couple numbers ticked up on your sheet, and then a couple numbers ticked up on your sheet, and then you rolled and you failed, and now... Uh, you can't die because you're the mutant aspect of corn. Like, of <laughs> Papa Nurgle. Right, man. yeah. Like, <laughs> and you will, you will just go insane now. <laughs> so let me ask you this. When you first joined the group and, you know, I said, hey, it's an Eberron game, 
you sort of looked through some of the books and the only concept you came back with was, hey, I think I want to be an adherent of the Church of the Silver Flame from Thrain. Mm-hmm. So why was it at that time? What about being a, a highly religious character intrigued you? Well, we're kind of putting the cart before the horse because mm-hmm. the gap in the party was cleric. Oh, interesting. Uh, and as, We had a bard. There as, was a bard. As I think we've talked about a little bit. Um <laughs> I mixed up Ravenloft and Eberron in my mind. Oh, thinking okay. having a cleric to deal with undead would be <laughs> awful useful. So then I went looking for cleric ideas that were most interesting to me, right? See, and I that's see. where I landed on why not lean into the cleric faith rather mm-hmm. than my uh, usual cleric is keep my god at arm's length. Like, don't. Get in my business, deity, and I will continue doing just enough for you to keep giving me powers. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing good works. Yeah. I'm doing great works. I'm, I'm the good works guy. <laughs> I do the good works because I'm good at doing good works for people. What don't you people understand about that? So on the flip side of this, have you ever GM'd for a religious character? I, obviously I have. Uh, well, yeah, so have I because I got six of them in a rogue trader Oh, game. Yeah, yeah, right, right, because uh, we are in some way, we have to be, yeah. And... And given the religious background of 40K, having an actual heretic in the party mm. who is just barely keeping it off of the like, <laughs> immediate, like... Uh, uh, I don't know about that, even. Well, we haven't gotten that far yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, once we figure out he can't die. Right. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> We're not there yet in the recaps. Oh, right. Whoops. <laughs> Somebody failed their corruption test. Mm. But which heretic? Right. Could be any of us. <laughs> Um, so in some ways, the heretic is actually kind of the more interesting religious character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Doc, right, uh, believes firmly in the scientific method, which, of course, gives him corruption. Because oh, that, oh, yeah. that is the way of Zinch. Yeah, anything that you're 100% sure of, that causes problems. Right. <laughs> so are there ever, ever times where you're running for a religious character and you're like, I just, I wish I didn't have to, like, deal with this here because... I'm already I'm already like the omnipotent controller of everything, but now I have to sort of present it in a, in a way for this particular character. And no, but no one else cares about this god. I don't struggle with that because I like bringing in those elements of the player's interest. Um, that helps me populate my world and make it feel more rich. Um, so that's sort of what draws me to role-playing games for creativity is that i don't necessarily get to only focus on the things that i'm super passionate about right i have to i have to solve that problem so you like making up new gods making up new gods or taking players ideas for gods and working them in that is not i thought you were catholic that is that is not okay it happens how about you because i know you definitely had to shoehorn in a couple deities (laughs) Uh, yeah, although I, I will say when I create, you know, long running campaigns, <laughs> uh, I'm glad I don't usually do it for the same people because almost always like the end is, well, you're going to kill a God. Right. Like that's happening. I mean, that's D&D. Pretty much. Right. Like what's stronger than that? Right. Um, you know, once you get past the, well, dragons are easy. Yeah. Well, how about the God of dragons? Right. Um, it always ends up heading in that direction anyway because uh, I like I like those concepts. I like the concept of dealing with, bartering with, haggling with concepts, you know, mm-hmm. creatures and beings who are 
so far beyond the physical that you can do anything you want with them and it makes sense within the game. Right. So pretty much everybody gets there eventually anyway. So I always know that I need to have it in there somewhere. Which is interesting because when I play, I almost always lean toward like an Athar. Like someone who says, okay, yeah, no, that's that's Morden over there. Sure. But I don't know that I'd call him a god. Right. He's, he's like just a really strong a, dude. Right. Like he's a super powerful, uh, incomprehensible alien, essentially, who could, you know, snuff me out of existence with a thought. But so could Arathis over there. So really... You're you're basically you know demons and dragons whatever right right yeah I I like that take on it um and I think that's overall what probably draws both of us to religion in games is just the variety of philosophies that you can adopt around them mm-hmm. kind of create that rich environment for your players to explore yeah it's such a great role playing opportunity that almost every character I have it's hard to leave it on the table, right? Like if I'm not playing a religious character, I'm playing a character who is sort of... Hectoring a religious player. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And actually the last Athar character I played was the one who met the Raven Queen and then was like, actually, you're cool. (laughs) (laughs) You you actually seem to be doing some stuff here that seems to be pretty effective. So yeah, I'm in. Let's do this. She's got pages. (laughs) (laughs) And then we killed Vecna. (laughs) All right, do you hear that, Ishan? Yeah, that's uh, someone knocking on Heaven's door. Then they're going to need to roll up a new character for the afterlife. Let's do that in the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building one of my favorite characters from uh, what has been a very 40K heavy episode. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> but the uh, the Inquisitor who inspired me to play Inquisitors, Eisenhorn. Yeah, Gregor Eisenhorn. For those of you who don't know, is an Inquisitor in the Warhammer 40K setting from Dan Abnett's Inquisitor novel series. The The first three are just Xenos, uh, Hereticus, and Malleus. And then Ravner is, well, focused on a different Inquisitor, yeah. but Eisenhorn still plays a big role. In any case, Gregor himself uh, is grim. Imagine that. But he's really, really resourceful. I think, to me, that's almost his primary attribute. Like, he's much more of a scholar and a planner than he he is a fighter, even though he is a very skilled combatant, both with his bolt pistol and his force sword. Yeah, and then uh, he falls quite dramatically. Does he? Does he? Or is he just really, really, really radical? Uh, what's the difference in 40k? Uh, so he ends up. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that he's, that he's damned, right? Like if he dies, I don't. I don't think a chaos god eats him. I don't know. I don't know. Right. He <laughs> he ends up uh binding himself to a demon host. Uh, which is bad. W- w- which is chaos. 
Um, and, and it's an ancient evil ritual that he uncovers and, and uses, though ostensibly he continues to fight on mankind's behalf. Uh, he's basically outside of the Imperium, uh, or at least outside of the Inquisition for sure. Uh, and I, I believe they have an order out on his head. Yeah. Uh, also, he has some somewhat minor psychic abilities. Yeah, I, I mean strong enough for dealing with everyday folk but not strong enough to deal with demon hosts and the the various other sort of uh super powered enemies of the imperium right he's strong enough for an inquisitor but ph balanced for the ig right and then the other thing that makes him such a compelling character is that he has a whole band of companions that sort of help him and and those characters are as richly characterized as he Mm -hmm. he is um so that's the pitch for the novel. I think building the character, we're going to focus on what is Eisenhorn in D&D terms. Right. Now, keep in mind, we did build in episode 12 a 40K Inquisitor. Yes. I think that was Rogue One, Ranger One, Paladin Six, Bard, whatever you want. Right. But this is very much geared specifically toward Eisenhorn himself and sort of late game Eisenhorn, who's got a bound demon host he's hanging out with. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think you know where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. It's a bit of a weird build, but bear with us. Devotion Paladin 10. Pact of the Chain Great Old One Warlock 10. I don't know that we've ever done a 10-10 split before. No. Maybe like one time. Very rare that we do that. Mm -hmm. So Paladin is going to get us extra attack, uh, smite, of course, and then heavy armor, which matches his power armor. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, You'll also get the protection from evil and good spell, as well as... Which is going to prevent possession by fiends. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then uh, anything fiends do to you, you will have that large saving throw bonus tied to your charisma. Mm -hmm. And you'll also end up immune to charm and fear, which I think is very important when you're literally feet from like chaos incarnate all the time. Right. Which, of course, is the reason that we're actually going all the way to Paladin 10. Because like we said, he's not like the most amazing fighter in the entire world. No, he's a remarkably competent fighter. (laughs) Right. And I think he uses, you know, this um, uh, special force sword that he channels his psychic energy into, which really is an exact equivalent for a Paladin's smite. Exactly. Then the other half of his character, uh, post-fall, would be Warlock 10. And that will get us telepathy right from great old one now flavor wise actually probably undying pack uh undying the undying patron probably like is a closer flavor equivalent but i think in terms of um abilities like this gives him telepathy right off the bat which he uses pretty consistently Mm -hmm. um he also gets an imp familiar so that demon can be right in your pocket if necessary. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, just reflavor it as man-sized. Or, you know, the corpse of your good friend right. that is now housing a demon. Yes. <laughs> your old knowledge cleric, mm-hmm. bound up in demon form. Uh, you've got a pretty sick Eldritch Blast, which, of course, is just pretending to be his bolt gun. Right. Uh, and then you get Entropic Ward. Uh, which lets him grant disadvantage uh, on an attack against him, which to me is uh, in the novels he uh, uses his psychic abilities in, in a way that he sort of calls the the will, which is he will, you know, put his uh, abilities into his voice and then command someone to do something. Mm-hmm. Either, you know, don't shoot him or shoot a friend or something like that. Yep. And then the other thing 
I, that it models really well is like a parry because uh, that also happens a lot in the novels. He just mm-hmm. fights a better swordsman, but uses his psychic abilities in order to like just be just fast enough right, to avoid getting his head lopped. Right, off. like a tiny telekinetic nudge. Right. Uh, and then at level 10, you'll get Thought Shield, which which prevents people from reading your minds. And, you know, at this point, Eisenhorn is really, uh, he's a rounded demon host. He is probably increasing his, his abilities as a psyker, even without intending to. Mm-hmm. So this ends up with a character with uh, two fifth level smites, as well as access to paladin spells up to third level. Yeah, those fifth level smites you get every encounter. And then the... Paladin spells, either for spells or spell slots, uh, refreshing on a long rest. I also like the idea that anything that's happening, that, that he's doing any of these warlock abilities, um, or even a lot of the paladin abilities, I would flavor them as coming from the demon host, from Cherubale. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, Cherubale does it, right? Because in the in the novels, he, he doesn't necessarily have, like, amazing spellcasting abilities. It's just he points at someone and the demon host rips them apart. Right. Which is, you know, a handy ability if you got one bound. <laughs> or, you know, carry me up to the, to the like, 30th story. Right. Right? So there's your fly spell. Yep. And it takes concentration to, you know, make sure your demon host doesn't, you know... Drop you. Yeah, or <laughs> for fun. Right. <laughs> so who is your Eisenhorn? I think my Eisenhorn... Um, I'll probably drop the 40k pretense and and play uh, angel and devil. So I think they're probably an Asamar. Oh, okay. Um, who you know feels the light of goodness within them, um, but and, and who begins as a paladin and is you know on the straight and narrow path toward justice. And I think they're going to have some sort of crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably there's a TPK and they're the only one who survived. Um, Or, you know, they were trying to rescue someone and it just didn't work out. You know, someone they love or someone who's like obviously innocent children or something like that. And they, I think the resolution to that is, is not that she decides I'm no longer going to worship my deity, but she decides there, there are other ways. There are, there are also other powers Mm -hmm. uh, that will help me in pursuit of the ideals of my deity. Yep. And so she makes a pact with the something unknowable uh-huh. out there, which I like the idea that it's not it's not a fiend, right? She's not actively um uh binding herself to uh an enemy of her deity. It is something out there that is that is maybe maybe even doesn't exist. Maybe adjacent. Right, or yeah, maybe beyond time. Right. But then, of course, de- decides that really the the most effective thing that she could do is hang out with a, a bound imp who has many, many capabilities. Right. And oh. is, you know, effective. Right. <laughs> what about your Eisenhorn? So I'm going to take the flavor in an entirely different direction. Okay. Uh Mine is a loyal and faithful and devoted paladin who was bit by a vampire. Oh, I dig it. Okay. But through her faith was able to resist the curse and disease of vampiracy and now is channeling some of the vampire who bit her uh, to increase her powers. Because uh, if you look at the the warlock abilities, in a lot of ways they're actually kind of similar to 
vampire stuff. Mm-hmm. Immune to charm, uh, immune to fear, um, telepathy, right? Like all of that stuff kind of has a little bit of a vampire flavor. I like that. Uh, also, undying would work really well for that yeah. as well. Fiend could even work because you get um, Dark One's Blessing, you get those temp HP. Right. Maybe, maybe occasionally she does feed. Kind of a lifesteal kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think I would try and take it in that way of uh, of not a paladin who has fallen, but a paladin who is struggling with this like burden within her. Right, it wasn't a, a choice. It is like a physical ailment. Right, like, yeah. a, like a failure, right? Vam- Vampiracy is it's an STD. Yeah. That's what I learned from Blade anyway. Right. All right, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to... Uh, become one of our Patreon backers and you visit patreon.com slash totalpartythrill to get access to all of our extra content and also to enter into our giveaway. So if you find that you can spare an extra $5 a month, please consider giving it to Operation Smile so they can fix cleft palates uh, in children around the world. And if you got a few bucks extra left after that, maybe throw it to our Patreon and try your luck in the raffle. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about the Death Spiral. And in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Triple Threat. Well, that's it for episode 110 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 